Right. Um, but watching Shag Shag, basically. <laughs> watching Shag do various things in various weather conditions. Um, That's we actually once, I mean, the, the birds would get everywhere in our house because it was on an island. So we actually had a shag on the toilet one day. Um, just sat there in the middle of the room. Um, I've heard all kinds of things. Owls in the house, wow. flying in. Um, the seal seals also live there on the island so once we had a seal in our toilet as well Holy just walked what all the way into the house and we had to um kind of chase it out <laughs> i can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments the game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. This week on the podcast, we had John Finch, who has a very appropriate name since he did part of his master's research uh, researching birds. He's more into insects nowadays, though, and we talked to him about uh, different pollinators and how they can have mutual relationships. Enjoy the episode. You're going to kill it. Dude, I watched your 3MT presentation. <laughs> That's good. We'll make the 30MT. 30MT, yeah. That's it. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it. Again, tangents are good. We can talk about TV shows. I mean, I ended up talking about Stranger Things with Alexi. So can do that again. Yeah. <laughs> do you watch it? I do watch Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Did you watch the new season? I did. Well, only halfway through, so no spoilers, please. What but the... I did enjoy the polywalk. I'm enjoying that sort of yeah. horrible monster going off. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's exciting. Episode what? Like four or five? Episode four or something like that. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's getting intense. Yeah. And I can tell it's just going to get worse. Yeah. It's, so, yeah, I'm sorry. Do you know? I, I, um, have you ever watched Westworld before? Westworld. Yeah. No. Oh, what what type of like TV shows are you into? Um, mixture, uh, documentaries, Stranger Things, crime, that kind of stuff. True crime. True crime. Stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, How to Make a Murderer. Have you watched that? I've watched that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't actually own a TV. You don't. No. So being um, an international student. And living in a, a PhD household, um, I don't think any of our housemates really that keen to uh, to shell out money for a TV. So none of us have bought a TV. We don't have a TV in our house. So we end up listening to a lot of podcasts um, and reading and doing a lot of stuff on the internet. Um, and that's one of the... I mean, we could easily buy a TV. We're just all a bit tight. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know... In I have a TV downstairs because I live with my family, but I never use it, man. I do everything on the internet. Yeah, well, that's the, the digital age, I guess. Is exactly. I grew up to be. I, I, there was a time where I was like ten, and I could tolerate the five-minute ads between like, yes. 
between like you know um like i used to watch dragon balls yeah i don't know if you if yeah, you're familiar yeah, with um, that, yeah, dude. That. oh dude oh. um so yeah well in um in the bbc which is in england is one of our main tv companies there are no adverts because it's all publicly paid for so that's what i'm kind of used to ah. so yeah coming over here and all the channels here are commercial networks pretty much um yeah and you get do you get adverts just all the time and also when you watch mainstream tv you'll just end up watching something that you don't really care about because it's on um so i'm you know, slightly addicted to river monsters um the the fishing show for no particular reason um, is that where they like they go hunting for those big fishes where they like they use yeah. their fist oh they use all kinds of things but yeah anything like that like it's basically it's a it's a weird nature documentary with some you know fish on steroids kind of thing right. going off and you know, i'll watch that just because it's on um, but no real interest in in fishing or anything like that that's interesting so I try yeah I actually try and avoid TV if I can if yeah. it's not something I actually want to watch that's interesting be careful oh, of, yeah. sorry because it's it, this as you can tell we have $15 mic stands yeah. so it's just going to reverberate and then pick up on the mic and I'm so. articulating too much <laughs> as well which might happen through the presentation no all good um, yeah uh I think, yeah, if you don't have Netflix, no problem. You can always, as a student, I always justify like um, streaming uh, shows allegedly. Yeah. You know, because I, I just can't afford it yet. No comment from me. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to incriminate myself. Yet. I just said Alleg that. Allegedly. You know? <laughs> allegedly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think one of the main things I watch is um, documentaries. That's the main thing. I, I really like those. Um, mainly lots of nature documentaries and stuff like that. And that kind of is always been one of my passions from a very young age and kind of explains why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Really? Um, because I was talking to my mum the other day and if you, she was going through some of my like notebooks and things from when I was about six years old. And it's just full of pictures of animals and, you know, various things like that, animals, bugs, plants that I've been drawing or writing about. Um, and I didn't quite realize that I was that obsessed from an early age, but now I look back and I say, okay, that's, I've always had an interest in the natural world and that's probably what's ultimately led me down this path of why I'm sitting talking to you in Australia right now. Right, so where did that fascination come from? I don't know. Um, obviously, David Attenborough is a big influence in lots of people's lives of all ages. Um, I'm not sure why I always was interested in um, the natural world. Could well have started with The Lion King and gone on from there. The Lion King is a great um, ecological film. It's got a strong ecological message in it. The circle of life is all very important. It's you know, and something we still think about now as you know, adult scientists now is this, the idea of the circle of life and energy and nutrients and all kinds of things being recycled through various life forms. Um, so maybe that's a, an influence the Jungle Book I mean I'm maybe just listing films that I liked because they had animals in them but maybe these you know Disney did have a, an impact on my career path and David Attenborough and, and all kinds of things like that that's that's fascinating yeah I'm curious which one came first your your interest or your exposure to these different who uh, knows yeah. I'm not sure they're just all all definitely there but I can't tease apart either one yeah um you know, it's not like I grew up on the Serengeti or anything like that. So, <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, you We're know, on the Serengeti. Growing, growing up in quite a rural, um, not rural, suburban part of the UK, you know, with not a great deal of wildlife around. Right. Who knows why 
why I focused on that particularly, but it could be anything, I imagine. Have you watched the new Planet of Earth documentaries? Um, I did watch some of them, yeah. Um, again, not having a TV, it makes it quite difficult. Um, but I've watched all of Planet Earth 1, yeah. um, Blue Planet, and that's coming out again now as well, which I'm, I'm super excited for that as well. Um, but I did watch some of the Planet Earth, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. It's just so so amazing. And all of those that series of documentaries as well, so... Um, human planet as well which is one of the more sort of um, anthropological ones it's also amazing as well um, yeah I just love all those things really. Mm. it's really I don't think there's any of them I haven't watched yeah um, it's really fascinating but whenever I do watch it I'm like man like how much work actually went into creating something like this how many hours did they just sit there still just to you know watch this iguana run away from like these bunch of snakes on the snake island yeah it's, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how what like a five minute sequence you know that must have taken yeah, months and then even before that planning for people to you know um, just just really stupid things like visas you know packing yeah. the right uh, the right number of socks you know yeah. to <laughs> go on these expeditions and stuff like that it all takes so much time yeah. um, and when you do this stuff like when you're not now making a recording um, you know, there's a lot of work obviously that goes into you just doing that. But then if you have to catch whoever you're trying to record, mm, uh, right. yeah, and all, and travel to some far off location or right. get permission from the local government, I'm sure it's just such a, a long and arduous task. Yeah, or, or, or what if or what if the podcast could only occur? I mean, if what if I had to like chase people and wait for the right conversation? <laughs> that would, yeah, that would make it more difficult. God. That'd be difficult. So, okay, these nature documentaries, potentially Simba from The Lion King was your inspiration to get into... Potentially, yeah. Okay. How did that develop? Um, so, I kind of um, was in the UK and I was finishing my A-levels, which is the equivalent of your HSC, I think. And we, or I was kind of trying to think of what I might do. Um, and I kind of had lots of pretty broad interests in lots of different things. And actually kind of resented having to pick like one specialty because there's lots of subjects I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I was pretty good at English and I was pretty good at biology and, and chemistry. Pretty bad at physics. So that was a, that just was decided for me. But I didn't enjoy learning about it. I just wasn't very good at the exams. Um, so I kind of realized at one point that um, I'd always had this interest in wildlife and the natural world and that I should probably do a degree in zoology just mm. how I started um, most people think zoology is um, what you might do if you were training to be a zookeeper <laughs> but it's uh, it's very academic and it's purely about studying and developing an interest in the natural world and particularly animals in that case um, and so I went to University of Newcastle upon Tyne which is a, a university in the far north of the UK mm-hmm. far north of England um, and did three years there um, studying various things and during that time developing um, quite a strong insects interest um, for so from Lion King to uh, you know ants really moving that way um, and yeah just kind of really enjoying the whole process and finding that my you know I was quite very passionate about these subjects and even um, you know talking to people in my class they kind of recognized that I was very passionate about learning and understanding and mm. you know 
thinking, oh, isn't this really cool that they do this and this does this? That's right. so amazing. Well, your fascination with uh, insects interests me because yeah. <laughs> because uh, I think I have a phobia of insects. Okay. Simply because You're I, not alone. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's so many to, to keep track of. And you, I just don't know which ones are dangerous. I avoid the ones with bright colors, but um, idea, yeah. yeah. But I yeah. Whenever I see an in, uh, insect, I'm like, man, I, I don't know if you're my buddy yeah. <laughs> or you just want to jack me. You know what I mean? Um, so the, you know, fear. I think a lot of times stems from ignorance and uh, from the unknown. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are, there aren't many um, insects or other creepy crawlies that I'll kind of recoil from. Um, or if I see them, I'm, I'm, they get me worried. Um, so, you know, wasps, bees, stuff like that, I'm pretty pretty good with them because you kind of know that they're, uh, that knowledge you have about them, mm. that understanding kind of tells you that, you know, they're not going to hurt me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I'm picking up a, um, a barbecue or something like that, I'm going to be pretty careful about accidentally touching a red back or something like that. Yeah. But if you see an insect you just don't have any idea about, do you, do you, are you like oh? If I if I I'm pretty excited if that happens. If I see something and I I'm like what what is this? I have no idea. Um, usually I'm going around and if I think think something's interesting, then I start picking it up and playing with it. And um, the bit of knowledge that I do have is enough to keep me sort of relatively safe. Um, I did get bitten by a big green catadid the other day. What's a, it's a it's catadid? It's like a massive grasshopper a huge thing and they feed on fruit trees around here uh-huh. and um, it crashed into my windscreen at about uh, 10 o'clock at night when I was driving home so I pulled over really quickly <laughs> and jumped out of the car and grabbed this thing and even as I picked it up very carefully by putting my hands pincering it with both my forefinger and thumb um, I could see that it was coming around to, to chomp me and it gave me a good uh, a good bite um, so I think twice about doing that again <laughs> Dude, I would have just hit the windscreen. Yeah, right no. there. Like, <laughs> this is it. I mean, I was jumping out of the car looking for it. Even now, I've just realized that this, this morning on the way in, I saw a spider um, on a flower. I've actually I trapped it in a little pot that I happened to have in my bag. And it's, I was thought, oh, I'll go look at this in the lab. And now I've just realized it's still sitting in my car. So I've got to go. I'm going to release this spider as well fairly soon. That's hilarious. Well, that's how you tell um, who's a biochemist and who's. That's true, yeah. yeah like, my. my like got reactions like get away run yeah. and you're like oh what's this oh yeah, so, stop playing with it. <laughs> yeah. um, so so your undergrad in zoology was at university of newcastle you mentioned yeah. um how did you decide or when did you decide that you wanted to get into research because you said you developed this interest in insects did you well how did you decide to take the next step so um towards the end of my degree we did a like an honors project and I actually decided to do an honors project on seabirds. So um, I spent, I did my honors project on a bird called a shag, which is like a, <laughs> a large aquatic seabird um, that lives on the coast of the UK. Right. Um, Sorry, that, that word has other meanings. It does have other meanings, In, yeah. in your country. It does, yeah. Um, so I did. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember my best shag puns right now. Sure there were absolutely loads. Anyway. Oh, you just got them. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> So what happened was, from there, I went and worked on this island for, to do my project. Um, and this is a, a tiny island. It's about 200 meters long. And it's about four kilometers off the coast of the UK in the North Sea. And I did my project and I got to know people there while I was doing this research. And from that point, 
Um, I spent then two years working on this island as a, a wildlife ranger with working with birds. Oh wow! Um, so puffins, you might not want to know what those are. It's kind of a, like a small penguin from the northern hemisphere with a brightly coloured bill, sort of red and blue and um, and white. So I spent two summers working on this seabird island with something, and we estimated something like two hundred and fifty thousand birds lived on this island. Wow! Um, and it's a very small island, as well as seals. Um, and all kinds of things. So it's one of these amazing wildlife places. And some of the birds, very much like the magpies and um, the lapwings here, will come down and peck you on the head oh. when you get next to their chick. Right. So our house was actually in the middle of their nest um, oh. of these several thousand birds. So they were pecking us all the time. And I had a great time living on these islands and driving a boat to work, and it was amazing. Wow. Um, and that's kind of that was real conservation work, um, trying to monitor these populations, which are globally threatened by overfishing, all the birds feed on fish, and by climate change, because the distribution of their fish is being changed by these warm waters, mm. which we get a lot more of these days. So I was working as a, a conservationist for a while, um, and a lot of that was amazing, really fun work, and just living with people who shared my interests. Um, but a lot of it is really hard, tough work, managing islands, cutting down vegetation, moving things, raking things. Um, there were no running water on the islands, so no toilets, so we had to um, manually haul water to the top of the island for visitors to use in the public toilets. So it's pretty back-breaking work. And um, after two years, I was kind of thinking, um, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. This is, I need something else. And started kind of thinking about my academic interests again. Mm. You know, what what would I want to do? And I didn't really want to be the person um, carrying things, you know, all my life, wanted to be some higher up and actually making decisions and right. being engaged. And getting other people to carry things. Getting other people to carry things, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So um, tell me what you did for your honours, because we didn't cover what, what you researched. So the project was, um, it wasn't a particularly good project, actually. It was um, just kind of looking at the breeding biology of shags and how um, I, I, the reason why I just wanted to come back to your honours was <laughs> to hear you say shags a few more times <laughs> just like Austin Powers speech, yeah. um, so it was just looking at their breeding biology like how often did the um, the male and female change over like was there a difference between male and female breeding behaviour um, because there are kind of different interests going on between a male bird and a female bird um, so you're looking at the shagging behavior? The shagging behavior of the shags. <laughs> um, the breeding body of shags is very interesting. Shags have a lot of... Um, they're meant to be monogamous. A lot of seabirds are meant to be monogamous. They just sit with each other. And um, even through multiple years, they shouldn't really change mates that much. But a lot of people realize that even within a colony, there's a lot of um, what they call extra pair copulations going on. Oh. So infidelity oh. within the seabird colony. Um, so it's quite um, a scandalous place. Wow. Colony with lots of um, naughty things going on. Oh. So my kind of project was looking at these, trying to see these naughty things, which is basically impossible unless oh. you could bring genetics into it. Right. Um, but watching shag shag, basically, <laughs> watching shags do various things in various weather conditions. Um, That's we actually once, I mean, the, the birds would get everywhere in our house because it was on an island. So we actually had a shag on the toilet one day. Um, just sat there in the middle of the room. Um, I've heard all kinds of things. Owls in the house, wow. flying in. Um, the seal 
seals also live there on the island so once we had a seal in our toilet as well Holy just walked what all the way into the house and we had to um kind of chase it out <laughs> Dude. But it's like a how big is it 100 kilos female seal oh shit we're trying to go into the house and have um, a pup in the house oh that's interesting have you seen seal shag penguins <laughs> not <laughs> You I'm have... sure. No, no, no. I, um, I'm sure it's happened. Oh, I'm sure they, they've had a go. Oh, they've recorded it. It's, <laughs> it's seals, shag penguins. What? Yeah. Oh no. It's, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've seen chimpanzees do it to frogs. It's a horrible world out there. The natural yeah. world. Yeah, and people I'm have. Show you that in the Lion King. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- that's exactly what I was trying to get to, right? People have like this Disneyfied perspective of what happens in nature, but nature's pretty brutal. It, nature is brutal. In fact, one of one of my best memories from. Um, working that island is we would we'd have loads of visitors come on um, and we have this huge colony of um, they're called guillemots so like a like a small penguin again and they they just stand on the rocks and have their chick directly on the rocks in this colony of like 20,000 birds all standing there so if you think like what an emperor penguin looks like huddling in the, the Antarctic um, it kind of looks like that and then periodically we would have groups of school kids come onto the island as well and they would come, they would walk along and they would stand in front of this huge colony and they'd have this amazing view of, you know, life, you know, the absolute epitome of nature, 20,000 animals all trying to breed at the same time. And um, we were standing there watching them and just as we were watching this huge gull, massive um, seagulls, call them the gulls where we come from, just came down and it just saw a chick right in the middle of the colony. It came down and it, it just swooped down, grabbed it in its bill and then swallowed the thing whole life right and the the teachers of the school the class they were they were berserk they were like what's this the kids can't see this this is disgusting what the kids loved it they were absolutely enthralled they just watched something get absolutely munched um and they i think hopefully they're all going to remember that experience for the rest of their life just seeing how how brutal nature can be this two-week-old chick um just nearly ready to go and just being devoured by this huge monstrous bird yeah it was, uh, it was amazing dude that's yeah that's crazy mm. yeah i whenever I, I watch those nature documentaries whenever like the predator eats the prey like when my mom's around she goes ah she's like a little squirmish I'm like, yeah get him, get him. <laughs> it's always they always do um i think they always go like uh whichever animal you see first probably going to survive these days because i think they've gone away from showing too much gore ah, so if they introduce the lion first right and the lion seem really nice then they'll right. then they'll let you see it kill the zebra yeah but if it's the zebra first then the zebra will get away it's all about that anthro- ah, anthrop- anthropomorphizing yeah that's interesting you know um uh, this is probably a bit off topic but uh I still have like 20 minutes to pick your brain, so I'm going to ask the question anyway. Um, The Disneyfication of nature, do you think that's had any sort of um, downstream consequences on on how conservation happens? That's interesting. Um, One of the main conservation issues as someone who studies insects is that most conservation effort goes towards preserving big charismatic species Mm. like pandas, or elephants mm. or things like that and there are there are definitely good sides to that these very large animals um use big areas of land and by conserving those big areas of land for the large animals you kind of conserve small areas of or the areas of land for small things as well they're kind of what we 
in the conservation industry they're, co- they're called um, umbrella species I guess mm. um, so I think I'm not sure if people always enjoyed thinking and looking at these big animals but I wonder whether um, it's put the emphasis too much on these what we call charismatic megafauna these mm. massive things that are really interesting and you know as a biologist when you kind of don't distinguish between the right of a you know an ant species over the right of an elephant species they're all kind of very important and have been evolving for mm. billions of years um, but I always think that you know publicity for animals and their particular plights is is always good um, in any light but yeah I think the shift it maybe has shifted things towards thinking about just the big species mm. orcas and lions and elephants yeah. and things like that well we should really be having a more kind of holistic approach to how we think about wildlife. Um, also, I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware of that dentist who went and shot that rhino in Africa. Yes. Yeah. I remember his name, but yeah. And there were other cases where Cecil the lion, I think, was another one. But, they, you know, they have these um, parks in Africa where they, they maintain, um, you know, the populations of rhinos or lions, and they have to kind of control their populations. And I believe that rhino was an older rhino that wasn't able to reproduce and was attacking younger males. And and so because of that charismatic megafauna, perhaps because of Disney movies, when it comes to lions and rhinos, people get super attached. And the, I suppose where I was coming from is like, even when like when it's good for the population for that rhino to die because you know you raise money and that money is used for conservation and killing that rhino means that other males have a chance to breed even though that's the case we attach this emotion um because of disney movies or whatever the case and that in itself can get in the way of trying to preserve these animals yeah i think so it's a really interesting question like is that you know is that morally right kind of sacrificing one animal for the good of all of them mm. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, it can be quite a dangerous area um, when you, you think you can do that morally um, to sacrifice one for the good of many. Um, I'm not really sure where I stand on that issue yet um, in terms of sort of big game hunting. Um, mm. And it's probably going to be quite specific to each individual case. Mm. Um, and each individual animal and, you know, how threatened it is and how it's being managed and um, various things like that but yeah it's, it's very interesting and it's I think it's the way that a lot of conservation is moving mm. um, towards that kind of um, that model of conservation but yeah, as an animal lover um, the idea of killing for sport or killing for enjoyment um, I find kind of a little bit abhorrent and I, you know, I can't really understand it mm. um, or people that sort of get a lot of enjoyment out of that I can understand Killing to eat, mm. you know, for um, sustaining yourself, but killing for, for sport isn't something that I can really condone mm. in my line of work. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as you. I think hunting is probably the most ethical way of acquiring meat, given like factory farming, the, the shit that we do to animals mm. in order to harvest meat. I would much rather like get an animal that's lived a natural life and then boom, it's taken out by a single shot. It doesn't have to get like you know the, you don't like you i'm sure you've seen like that documentary about how they like there is cows the feces levels like raise up to here they have to give them antibiotics to mm-hmm. it's totally fucked man yeah um but okay let's so you, you did your two years and then you were thinking about your academic uh uh career or so 
what did you do next after the two years of spending uh, uh, time on that island looking at... Sh- no, it was after the shagging. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to get that on going there. Um, so I guess I was kind of thinking like... Um, it probably goes back to stuff that people had told me back when I was at, at undergrad that is that if you want to kind of progress in that field, conservation and wildlife and biology, then you really kind of need to have a PhD. I think you need to be a doctor because mm-hmm. in some instances, I really think there's a like a glass ceiling unless you have one of those qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began thinking about how I would get those jobs and to get those jobs, I probably needed a high level degree. Yep. Um, so how was I going to go about getting one of those degrees? And the first step for me was to get a master's degree, you know, a ba- uh, sort of a higher up degree than I had, mm-hmm. and then I would use that to get an um, to go and find a PhD. So I decided in the end to do a degree in entomology, which is the study of insects, um, based on because the fact that I was good at that subject at university, I enjoyed it, and um, insects in general are, if you're going to study the natural world, insects are just fascinating, and they really are. Um, so important. So there's a really famous ecologist um, called E.O. Wilson. Um, and he's kind of like this, this huge figure and probably one of the most eminent ecologists and biologists we've had in the last 50, 100 years, you know. Um, and he said that insects are little things that rule the world. And he, he's right because they're involved in so many important processes and they're so numerous. Um, so if you're going to think about what to study, if you're interested in the natural world, then insects are very important part of that process and other things like birds and mammals if they disappeared would the world look that different probably not yeah. Yeah, that's the thing it'd be sad if they did disappear but the ecosystems themselves the diversity wouldn't change that much so okay i'm going to ask you a question sure how many species of mammal do you think there are in the um, world species of mammal oh man i'm going to be put on fuck i don't know man like 10,000. Uh, not too bad. Okay, so there's 4,000 species. Oh, fuck. Okay. I thought it was going to be like a million. <laughs> <laughs> and that number hasn't changed very much. Okay. Because it's rare to discover new species of mammal. How many species of bird do you think there are? Uh, probably like 500. Ah, 10,000 oh, species shit. of birds. So there's a lot of species of birds around. Okay. Now, how many species of insects do you think there are? Oh, man, probably a million or something. The answer is we don't actually know this because... There's so many that no one has, could possibly count or know how many species there are. We reckon that there's somewhere between 8 and 30 million species of insect. Whoa. But as of yet, we probably only have about a million of those which have a name, which is amazing feat, just to have given every a million different species their own two-part name, yeah. um, their own Latin name. So, you know, in the context of that, let's say, let's meet in the middle and say there's something like 15 million insect species and then you think about 4,000 mammals and they're just, it's a rounding error. You know, it's, it's completely lost in this sea of diversity, which is insects. So they're, they're the real kind of stars of this planet. The, yeah. you know, the, we are very interesting, but insects are kind of, they're at the peak of um, evolutionary success and expansion and diversity. And they're really kind of amazing in that sense. Yeah, I've heard the statistics and you probably know better. But I've heard that if you wipe out all human beings, um, as you were saying, the bio, the, like Earth won't look much different. It would probably be way better off, you know. It would be, yeah. yeah. But if you wipe out like all the ants, like we're screwed. 
Yeah, the ants are so important for um, particularly kind of ecosystem functions. So, you know, they, they t particularly in the tropics, they take all this um, biological matter and they turn it back into nutrients, which then goes back into trees and then back into living things. So it's, they're very important in nutrient cycling and um, they're also quite important predators in lots of places. So they decrease the number of lots of other species and allow plants and other animals to flourish. So they kind of help to maintain the balance of these ah, keystone species. Right. Is that similar to how like when they introduced the wolves in Yellowstone, exactly, yeah. they started killing off like reindeer and that enabled the trees or the shrubs to grow and that kind of changed the course of the river and then exactly, it changed the whole yeah. landscape. There, yeah, so the, the ecological term there is a keystone species, so something which has a, a dramatic effect on underpinning its, um, its environment and ecosystem. If you remove that, like wolves, um, then you'll get these kind of cascading effects where everything is affected in different ways. Yeah. Um, so insects and ants particularly are super important in that respect. Yeah. Um, but another, you know, people talk about bees and other pollinators as well. You know, what would we do without bees? Well, we'd survive, but a lot of the really good things in life that we enjoy, the crops, um, so things like tomatoes, uh, mangoes, avocados, without pollinators, mm. you know, we, we might have them, but we'd probably have to hand pollinate them ourselves, which would take a lot more time and we'd be a lot more expensive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're very important in, in our lives and to the ecosystem in general. For sure, yeah. And I've, before we move on to the next question, but I, I heard some crazy stat that if you add the biomass of all the ants on Earth, it roughly equals the biomass of all the humans on Earth. I'd be, I'd be surprised, yeah, if it wasn't, if the biomass of ants wasn't greater. Um, you're looking at countless, countless millions of colonies, each containing, you know, up to two million, ten million individuals in some extreme wow. cases. So yeah, the biomass is is insane. That's crazy. Um, and there's such important, important animals and tropical ecosystems but also if you you know go somewhere like if you take a walk outside and go into the, the cumberland plain woodlands just across the way here in richmond then you'll see hundreds of different ant species hundreds, loads of different ant species yeah. doing exciting things and managing that ecosystem in the best way right so you you knew you had to do a phd i did yes uh, well i wanted to do a phd okay um, wanted and needed to yeah because i kind of realized that the jobs I wanted, um, the jobs where I get to make fun decisions and do things and make a difference, um, required that kind of higher level of training almost. Um, I kind of felt that that was important for the best jobs um, and the best salary and the best opportunities for me. Right. And it kind of played into my interests as well. Right. So how did you get into one? What would it, like, because you're doing your PhD here in Australia. I did, yeah, I did am. Um, so what happened was that I did my master's degree in entomology um, at a very small agricultural university in the UK, which kind of reminds me a lot of the Hawkesbury campus, actually. <laughs> it's a bit more remote. Um, so, and this particular campus, uh, when you, you went there, you kind of opened the prospectus and they had two, the two most important questions that students often ask in this, uh, for this campus were, um, can I bring my horse to university? <laughs> like, yeah, of course you can, we've got stables. And the next question was, can I bring my gun? And of course you can, I have a gun safe. So it's really like farmery, agricultural, everyone drives Land Rovers and has tweed jackets and flat caps and big uh, gun boots, as you call them here. Um, so was at that university and did my master's degree. And at the end of it, I got this email from a researcher in um, Australia. Now he was 
based here at HIE. Mm -hmm. And he knew my current supervisor, so that's how he got my email address. And he was kind of asking for students to come and undertake an international scholarship with um, Western Sydney University. Mm. So at the time, and I think they still do this, but Western Sydney were giving out scholarships to worthy candidates from across the world um, in an attempt to bring in people from different countries and different universities. And I think it was kind of an attempt to um, increase their, their international impact and uh, um, networks to universities across the world, mm. um, which is very admirable, I think, and is, is universities are key in this kind of um, bridging the gap between countries and mm. states. So Western University offered this position um, for everyone to apply for um, if you had a project. So me and my supervisor here now um, got together and he suggested a couple of things I could do projects on. And in the end, we settled on this um, one particular project about very specialized pollination between certain plants in Australia and certain insects. And then we applied and we sent that to Western Sydney University and I was successful in getting that. Mm. Um, so from that point on, it was the university said, can you be here in three months? And the ball rolled on and you know, three months later, just after Christmas, I was in starting my new life in Australia, new, wow. new research role as well. That's cool. So what type of questions did you try to answer for your PhD? So, or you're still trying to answer? Cause still you're trying, yeah. So yeah. I have to explain a little bit about what it is, but um, I study what they call pollination mutualisms. And this means um, we study very specialized interactions. And if, every if you could just get up on the mic oh, a little sorry. bit, sorry, yeah. Very specialized interactions. And um, in these interactions, every plant is pollinated only by a single um, species of insect. So what happens is the insect comes along and it moves pollen between the female, the male and the female flowers of just that species, which is quite rare in nature to have a very specific pollinator that only does this. And this has this is important for the plant because it kind of um, having a specific pollinator means you have very efficient flow of pollen between your plants um, and it's very good for outcrossing and making sure your offspring as a plant are the fittest possible. Mm. So in return for this highly specialized pollination service, this insect, which in my case is a moth, um, lays its eggs into the flower that it pollinated. Mm. So as this flower then develops into a fruit, some of its offspring munch through some of the seeds. So the plant actually is kind of sacrificing its offspring for this highly efficient pollination service. Mm. And this moth is doing the service because then it gets this really good um, food source for its offspring. So it's, it's a mutualism there. This plant and insects have evolved to mutually benefit each other. So this, there are lots of different examples of this around the, the globe and it's evolved sort of four or five different times, we think. This particular one that I work on evolved about 10 million years ago, just once, between one plant and one insect. And now there are 500 species of plants and probably 500 to 1,000 species of insect doing the same role. So it's kind of, it's mutualism, it's how species interact for their benefit, it's how um, evolution takes something like that, that starting point, and then diversifies into hundreds of different species um, in many countries all the way across uh, Japan and India down through Thailand, um, Malaysia, Indonesia, and into Australia. And no one's really done much research on these interactions going on in Australia. So my project was to come in and very basic stuff um, from the start. So originally the title for my project for a, a lot of this has been low hanging fruit because it's just, it's really is just going out there and seeing what's going on because mm. there's no kind of formal description of any of these behaviors. 
we don't know how many insects there are, how many plant species really, when they flower. Um, so it, it's just going out and doing kind of really basic ecology, trying to answer these really basic questions about both species and how they interact. And once we have that knowledge, then you can start addressing other questions like, well, how are these two species evolving? And in particular, how are they co-evolving? Mm. So evolution is something we, most people will be familiar with, but there's also a concept of co-evolution and it's very important when we think about plants and insects and plants and insects are some of the most diverse and important groups on our planet. And we want to, and there's these old theories going back to the sixties that they're actually evolving together. So, you know, they're following each other either because they're being antagonistic, one's eating the other and it's evolving a trait that stops it eating it. And then the insect evolves a trait that allows it to eat it again. It's so antagonistic or mutualistic where they're evolving to benefit each other. Mm. So yeah, really basic stuff. So I've spent um, the first year just going out and collecting fruits from this plant. And then we did DNA barcoding on those just to find out, okay, so we've got all these insects coming out, these moths, but how many species are there? We can't tell any difference with our eyes, but maybe genetically there is a difference. And ultimately we found that there are two species. So in a sense, we've kind of discovered two species um, during this process of genetic work. So yeah, pretty basic. Um, basic stuff really right in the three minute thesis explanation uh, which you did a great job so for the folks who don't know John you won the UWS um, yeah WSU WSU sorry <laughs> <laughs> they spent 20 million dollars and I still can't remember <laughs> shit man <laughs> yeah you were talking about like how there these two species one is like more of a traveler and can get out of the can you talk a little bit about that because sure yeah so um as in all all good science you kind of go out there and answer one question and that just leaves you with another set of questions that lead you off in another direction so once we went out and we kind of assumed that this plant that we're studying we looked at it all the way across new south wales all over the coast and it was assumed that it would just have one species of pollinator mm. um, but then we looked at it and it actually had two species of pollinator and that made us ask this question. So in nature, you rarely get two species doing the exact same thing. Mm. It's called the ecological niche. And um, so two species might feed on the same tree, but one feeds on the leaves and one feeds on the, um, the tree trunk. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of separated. And they're not competing because they feed on different parts. But here we have two insects, two pollinators that seem to be doing the exact same thing. So how can we um, rectify that with what we know about ecology? You know, how are these two species different? Hmm. Um, and are they competing? Um, so the next part of my PhD and it's ongoing now is kind of trying to answer that question. How do two species that are very similar coexist and coexist across such a large area? Um, every single site that we looked at for these insects had both species in hmm. pretty much the same proportion. Um, and kind of the answer we're looking at now is that species can coexist if they're very similar, but they have to have kind of differences in traits. And what we call these is differences in life history traits. Mm. So two species life history might differ because um, one might invest quite heavily in making, putting all of its energy in a couple of offspring. Um, so something like an elephant, I guess, might be a good example. Elephants, very long gestation period, something like almost two years, put all of its energy into making one very large, well-developed offspring. You look at something like a mouse, they might have a different um, 
What do you call a baby mouse? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, well, so anyway, um, might have you know a group of baby mice. Might it might give birth to a group of baby mice two or three times a year. Yeah. So you're looking at these different life history traits, like how much you invest in your offspring. Yeah. And that's the same for plants. So how much you invest in your seeds, or uh, for insects, potentially how much you invest in your eggs. So that's one trait we're looking at, like how much are they investing, right. and that might mean that one can. Um, outcompete the other. Mm -hmm. It's a great. It's a good competitor if it puts all of its energy into laying a couple of really big eggs, or you might get one that just lays tiny eggs and just puts them everywhere and disperses really far and outcompetes because it's very good at laying thousands of tiny eggs, most of which won't survive, but some will. Yeah. So it's kind of teasing apart these little species differences, which I'm interested in at the minute and finding out what's going on there. Cool. Damn it. We've run out of time, folks. I would have liked to get another 15 minutes with him, but he's got a meeting and I have to head off. Um, I want to thank you for your time, John. That was actually a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah, so do you have anything else you want to say? People want to, If you want people to follow you or if you're, if you're promoting anything? Um, I would say that um, follow your passions. A general advice um, to all people. I would also say that if anyone's particularly interested in science, um, and a career in sciences at a young stage in their career. Um, E.O. Wilson, who I mentioned before, is this great scientist, um, ecologist, and ant expert. Um, he wrote a more general book, and it's called um, Letters to a Young Scientist. It's a very short book, mm. it's very interesting, and it gives you a kind of background of what you should be doing and the skills you should be developing to succeed anywhere in a career in science. But if you're a, um, a biomedical student or a, an ecologist or an evolutionologist, um, whatever you want. It's a very good book. So I'd recommend that to anyone interested in a career in science. And it's a really good starting point for thinking about how you're going to shape your career in science as well. Awesome. I'll definitely give that a read then. Thank you again. We'll see you folks next time.